You have been chosen to defend the realm of Earth in a tournament called Mortal Kombat. The Empress Demon Sorcerer Shang Tsung and his warriors have to win ten straight victories in Mortal Kombat. <laughs> they have won nine. This will be the tenth tournament. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Let Mortal Kombat begin! A handful of people on a leaky boat are going to save the world. Exactly. Today, as part of our Bargain Bin series, we'll be looking at Mortal Kombat. Starring Robin Shaw, Lyndon Ashby, Bridget Wilson-Sampras, Carrie Hiroyuki Tagawa, and Christopher Lambert. Directed by Paul W.S. Anderson. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. It's Gally and I'll be using the element which brings life to review this film. And it's Devlin. Let's dance. Yes, welcome listeners. We are doing another Bargain Bin series this time, so we're going to be reviewing not only Mortal Kombat today, but also next week we'll be reviewing Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Very excited. <laughs> I'm, I'm genuinely very excited. I don't think I've ever seen Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Oh God. It'll finish you. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, uh, it's, a, it's another bargain bin where we celebrate the ubiquitous trash nonsense that littered our formative years. Though the bargain bin would denote possibly a lowering of quality. Though there are, there are those ubiquitous films that are in the ether that can just be good popcorn fun. So we're hoping, he says that Mortal Kombat will be able to achieve that. That's true, yeah. I, sh- I, shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't dismiss this out of hand. That's, uh, that's, that's maybe a little, a little unfair, but we'll see. In terms of that ubiquity, this was adapted from, from the, the very popular video game. I don't know, Gally, uh, uh, how, how much of your youth was, was wasted on Mortal Kombat? Oh, I'd probably say about four or five years. The game Mortal Kombat, a little bit of context, developed by Midway Games in Chicago, uh, released in 1992, and I started playing it, I would say, in 93, which meant I was eight years old. I remember playing it in arcades. You know when you go like bowling mm. and you always get the video arcade games there? I don't know about the American listeners. Obviously, they have their own gallerias. <laughs> I assume so. I assume there is a galleria in every major city. Yeah, we we in the UK, or certainly in, uh, in Stoke-on-Trent, it was very much that arcade games were played in, you know, bowling and quasar, and the cinema sometimes. So yeah, they were normally attached. The 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 out of town, um, the out of town entertainment hubs that sprung up in yeah. the in the early nineties to sweep away all the city center cinemas. That's where I was first kind of exposed to the game, and then when like home video uh, game consoles, so I had like the Master System, and then. The Sega Mega Drive, which I think in America is called the Sega Genesis, but then we had a Genesis. It's all very confusing. Mm. Anyway, that's they were the platforms and eventually PlayStation. So I know Mortal Kombat, probably the first three games uh, I was a big, big fan of. And then as I sort of grew older and went into my teens, uh, I sort of left it behind. What about you? Well, I mean, I, I played it for definite. It was one of those things that was talked about a lot. 
as a as a kid the at the time super cool violence of it all you know people would would recount tales of how it's sick and you pull out a spine and stuff it's just it's exactly <laughs> the kind of thing that appeals to the the more dunderheaded uh youths of which i was of course one but um i was never really much of a, a, a computer games guy we had a nez when i was a kid <laughs> had a zx spectrum never really went beyond that to be honest my brother bought me a sega dreamcast once but he bought it like six years after it came out and it was discontinued <laughs> about six months later. And I later found out that he bought it off one of his roommates uh, off, uh, off his first year of uh, university roommates. So yeah, I basically played um, trick style for about four months and then gave up. <laughs> the main, the main draw for the game, certainly in my little mind at that age was the gore and the ability to, like you said, do these creative fatalities. Yeah. Because outside of uh, Mortal Kombat, there was Street Fighter, but Street Fighter was sort of anim- animated and slightly, I wouldn't even say kid-friendly. It was just, um, it was very just a far and, different... Yeah. yeah, it's just a different aesthetic. Yeah. Whereas Mortal Kombat used sprites and and digitized, actual digitized um Yeah, like video actors. footage of, of, of actors. Yeah. And... And, and so that kind of made it visceral and real and... Yeah, like now looking back, it's got a charm, but yeah. it's not as, not exactly photorealistic. However, at the time, my imagination just yeah just ran wild with this property. I was I was a big 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 fan. Followed the cartoon which came out <laughs> after after the films, uh, which if you've never seen it, is essentially like Thundercats. They've got a layer and it's a oh villain God, of the week kind of thing incredible. yeah it's um it's it's interesting how um how something can expand and evolve you know it's not too dissimilar to uh to something like star wars in fact i was thinking about the the pop culture sensation which was mortal kombat mm. actually when i started to really think about it i was like in the 70s you've got star wars and you've got say jaws as like a you know the two big hitters uh, and then in the 80s it's like ghostbusters such a huge property that people now even now have still got like uh, a, a kinship to and i was going to say like teen slasher films you know the uh, nightmare on elm streets and yeah and the friday the 13th were just like big sensations that then permeated pop culture and in the 90s it's to me it's jurassic park and it's mortal kombat obviously that uh that huge profile that it had led somebody despite the previous couple of years being littered with uh, failed video game adaptations. Someone else wanted a crack at the at the whip, so we ended up with a a film. I guess um timing wise it was very fortuitous. Like they, mm, they got onto yes. it quick. They they managed to catch the wave before it receded because um, these things can move so fast, maybe less so in the nineties, just because there was less of a deluge of constant stuff. But if you think now, like if you tried to adapt a video game property, by the time you actually bring the film out, people are kind of over the game. And that individual who had the foresight was uh, named Lawrence Kazanoff. Mm. He's the producer of Mortal Kombat. So he was introduced to the game and I've read an interview with him. And he was basically saying that he was when he went to Midway Games and saw it, he was like, I must have this property. Mm. And in his mind, he saw a property not unlike Star Wars as far as how you could expand it, the universe. And to be honest, this film cost like $20 million, which is pretty slim pickings. And it made like 100, 
I think it was 140 million. It was it was a huge success. It went it went in the um uh top of the box office, which is insane when you now watch it back and think, wow, everyone was. It's not a predictable success that one, especially that level of success. You'd expect no, to you know no. turn a bit of a profit on name recognition, but you're looking at a film where the only name star in it is Christopher Lambert. <laughs> who is several years removed from his Highlander peak. Oh, don't forget Fortress, Devlin. I never want to forget Fortress. Stuart Gordon, (laughs) the man man can do no wrong in my eyes. He's a name that people would recognize, and he's he's big enough, clearly, to to open a film just based on his name. But I'd argue that. Well, at this this stage, I guess, certainly it's enough to get people through the door. They're like, oh, Christopher Lambert's in it. It must be a real thing. And you alluded to it before. So the first video game to film adaptation was Super Mario Brothers, which I've got a little bit of a soft spot for because of its just complete and utter bonkersness. Mm-hmm. Following up was Street Fighter yeah. with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Well, they went they went in big on Street Fighter. With Street Fighter, they, they definitely missed the mark on their target audience. And also, they, were, they almost felt like Hollywood was a bit ashamed to say that they were making video game to film adaptations like let's remove ourselves as far as we can from the you know from the actual original incarnation of this story which you know they they took a very different approach to this street fighter didn't really have it was just a a relatively generic action thing i don't really remember the plot you know what the problem with street fighter is We've got we've got war allegories going on, but at no point is it just sort of two characters squaring off, or occasionally it's two characters just squaring off to have a big scrap. But but it's only occasional, yes. and there's a whole bunch of other shit around it. Whereas, I mean, for for anything else we're going to talk about on Mortal Kombat, at least what they did was sit down and plot out some scenes where two characters just punched each other for a bit. Um, and instead of a Stephen E. D'Souza, we got uh, Newcastle Zone, Paul W.S. Anderson. <laughs> Make sure you highlight the W.S. because in, in the credits for this film, it'll just say Paul Anderson, not the man we've discussed previously on the show, Paul Anderson of Boogie Nights. Definitely yeah. Paul W.S. Anderson. What do you think of him? What have you, how, many, how many of your films have you seen? What have I seen? Uh, this. I've seen uh, Event Horizon, of course, which is a film that kind of goes through strange cycles of reappraisal. You'll, you'll get, sometimes you'll get people sort mm. of referring back to it and saying, you know, maybe it's a bit of a, an unfairly maligned quasi masterpiece. And then other people will say it's complete <laughs> dreck. And then it's, it's probably somewhere in between those things, but um, I don't know whether he's a natural fit to be a film director. I, I agree with that. There's just, mm. there's some strange, strange, yeah. strange stuff going on with his, Shot selection, editing, coherence. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so I've, so I've, I've certainly, I've, I've not kept up with his career. I don't know about. Have you seen any of his twenty-six Resident Evil films? <laughs> I've actually seen about three or four of them, um, but just out of pure curiosity, because like I, was, I, I remember when they were they were coming out, you know, pretty much every other year. Yeah. I was thinking like, how on earth is this series still going on? So I was just to. Just to sort of appease that, uh, I've seen a few of them. But you, you use the word maligned, and that is the perfect word to describe Paul W.S. Anderson. I think he's he's one of those people that, because he shares his name with a, uh, a darling of cinema, yeah. <laughs> that 
that he's he's somewhat compared. And I think you're right. He's um, the mid '90s was weird, wasn't it? Because you had like this uh, this sort of this influx of British directors. There's there's a couple. There's uh, Ian like Ian Softly being brought over to make Hackers, which is a strange fit. Um, De- Danny Cannon doing Judge Dredd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, you know, even even Danny Boyle when he did, you know, it's a couple of years later, A Life Less Ordinary. You know, I think you can attribute it almost to a sort of knock-on effect from Tarantino, where you've got this new generation of directors that are kind of based in. Not, they're not all music video directors. No. But they've got that aesthetic. Where was, was Paul, got... uh, Paul Anderson a music video guy? Because I know he'd done his. Uh, he had his, his first feature. The British film was uh, Shopping, Shopping, which I've not yeah. seen. But, uh... I have. It's not very good. Oh, okay. But... <laughs> it, I, I don't know what to say other than it's just not very good. But it but it introduced the world to Jude Law, so I, I think that's what it's right. most famous for. So maybe uh, maybe he got very fortunate on on his casting. Yeah, I think so. But he, he's also. To be fair to him, he's managed to carve out a bit of a niche for himself. Yeah. He's now the guy who makes these terrible video game adaptations, in, certainly in the Resident Evil series. I'm not going to show my hand on this one. But I, I really did turn against him when he did Alien vs. Predator, which... Oh, God, yes. Yeah. How could I forget about that when we're reappraising his career? Yeah, that was abysmal. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really a fan of the majority of his oeuvre... I'm I am one of those people that I'm not going to say it's a quasi masterpiece, but uh, Event Horizon has got it, it's got some stuff in there. It's got real themes. I would I would quite like to pick through um, uh, Event Horizon with you one of these days. Yeah, I think we will do because and it'll probably be a bargain bin because it was a thick. Well, okay, no one went to see it at the cinema, but now certainly it's definitely yeah. ubiquitous. Oh, but yeah, but I remember everyone. Uh, again, it's it's you know it's word of mouth stuff at school. You would hear about Event Horizon. People like this film's fucking crazy. That's nobody at my school talked like that. By the way, I just thought I should. <laughs> it's got some really powerful imagery, yeah. And you know, it's a it's a, a tightly constructed haunted house in space story. So I do think there's a filmmaker in there, but because that film completely and utterly flopped, and that was an original story, I think he just went and recalibrated his career and just said, you know what, I'm just going to focus on entrenched ips yeah and that's going to be my thing and then once he found success it's fair it is fair play but he's almost a bit zach schneidery where he's so preoccupied with look with the aesthetics that he's not really focusing on the things that a director really should be which is story and character so it's it's a ballsy choice though as director like you say you know to, to to pluck this guy pretty much out of almost complete anonymity and give him a give him a uh, a property which i assume the the producer was it lawrence kasanoff kasanoff yeah. yes. uh probably sunk quite a lot of money into so um, it's it's a yes. it's a brave choice as is i think um having it seems that they they maybe obscured it a little in the promotional materials and in the release of the film they they sold it from what I remember very much like how they sold Batman, which is that first Batman movie. They sold it on the icon of the Batman shield, and it was just that on a mm-hmm. poster. I'm pretty sure I remember these posters being exactly the same. It was just it's the the dragon head in the circle, yes. and that, that's it. So it almost doesn't matter who's in it. But I do find it impressive mm-hmm. that, um, especially in '95, that there's a film where the lead character is uh non-white is um yes a, yep 
pretty much unknown, uh, certainly to Western audiences, um, Hong Kong action star. Yeah, yeah. You've got to you've got to commend the uh, the filmmakers for making that choice, and it's the right choice. Yeah. What they do with his character <laughs> in the script, we can discuss. But certainly, uh, getting Robin Chow on board uh, was was definitely the right thing to do. Uh, and this is sort of pre Jackie Chan becoming like mm. huge because you, again, you've got to remember '95. The only way you'd be able to get a hold of sort of any Asian martial arts yeah. films would be if you had a really, really good spa. Yeah, I was. You know what? I was opposite. I was street. thinking because spa's the only place. Because yeah. Blockbuster no, would. No, no. I was. I was thinking not, not exactly the, the same thing. Which is like I was trying to fathom out. You know, apart from just the fact that this is, you know, a very famous game, why it was such a big hit? Because you know, Super Mario is a more recognizable game. Everyone knows Super Mario, and that film nobody went to. It's completely tanked. And this thing, but yeah, I think you're right in that. Um, we used to, I mean, we used to hear about these films. I remember hearing about Hard Boiled for years when I was a kid. People would talk about it, and you know how how class it was and maybe it had been on channel four one night at 1am and one kid saw it mm-hmm. and then the stories of how amazing it is riffled throughout the whole of uh, of the the town but it was you know it was a long time before you got to see it because you know there weren't specialist video shops in darlington there weren't there was no other way to to access this stuff so you just heard about it and heard about it until you were lucky enough to eventually catch it um, so yeah, this was probably yeah. the the first and best place for people to see some relatively authentic. Because um, uh, Robin Shaw uh, uh, was also the fight choreographer for the film. Uh, one yeah. of maybe he was one um, of. yeah he was he was brought in. There was a you know a, a lead choreographer. He when he came in, he was allowed to um, choreograph some of the the moves. But it seems that certainly when they came in for a lot of the reshoots. Oh yeah, he yeah. did all the reshoots, which is you why can, you can those tell. particular fight sequences yeah. are the best ones. Yeah, um, yeah, you you can definitely see the definitely. the difference in quality when he when he gets his hands on it properly. So um, yeah, it is. It's a uh, it's it's exposure for for stuff that was trickling through into the public consciousness, and people were starting to. I mean, Jackie Chan's breakthrough would have been what just a year later, maybe. I'm thinking like Rumble in the Bronx. Yes, yeah, just a year later. Would probably be the first first chance people get to see it and obviously so you know it's a bit symbiotic it would be the buzz behind this kind of hong kong action cinema because maybe people's ideas of martial arts cinema was sort of rooted back in the bruce lee era so devlin would you like the plot of mortal kombat <laughs> i want to see what i've come plot, up with because <laughs> i've seen it and i and i want to know what i watched <laughs> Mortal Kombat pits Earth's greatest warriors against the best in the realm of Outworld. If Shang Tsung and his team win 10 consecutive tournaments of Mortal Kombat, the portal between worlds will open and the sorcerer and his dominions will invade Earth. The god of lightning and defender of the Earth realm, Raiden, guides our heroes through the tournament. Firstly, we have Liu Kang, a disciple of the Temple of Light who seeks revenge on Shang Tsung for the death of his brother Chan. Secondly, we have Johnny Cage, a Hollywood actor who's desperate to disprove claims that he's a fake. Finally, we have Sonya Blade. I don't know what kind of officer, but (laughs) some kind of officer who wants to avenge the death of her partner at the hands of the underworld crime boss, Kano, 
who was working for Shansung. We also have Art Lean. He's a kickboxer and he's a red shirt. The fighters are transported to a mysterious island where the Mortal Kombat tournament will commence. Liu Kang receives pearls of wisdom from the beautiful Princess Katana, who is the rightful heir of Outworld, but is being held hostage by Shansung. After several fights, including those against Kano, Sub-Zero, Scorpion, Shansung unleashes Prince Zgoro, a four-armed creature who makes light work of Earth's representatives, including our beloved Art Lean. Johnny Cage then defeats Goro, leaving only the sorcerer left to fight. In the final act of cowardice, Shansung kidnaps Sonya and takes her to Outworld. Liu Kang follows him, challenges the evil sorcerer, and defeats him in the final battle. Our heroes return to Earth and the Temple of Light, only to be interrupted by the Emperor of Outworld, Shao Kahn. Cue the techno! That is extremely comprehensive and very helpful well i'm gonna just say it now so this was written by uh, an individual called kevin droney he has been responsible for the mortal kombat tv series did i mention there was a tv series along with the animated one the live action tv series i have seen and i know about it well because i remember you shouting at one of our housemates <laughs> because he tried to convince you it was good yeah that was unfortunate wasn't it i was a little bit more aggressive in my opinions back then at uni but yeah, if you're listening, Phil Brown, I'm really, really sorry. Uh, but that TV show is a piece of shit. <laughs> we won't be covering that on a future episode. No, definitely not. Definitely not. It. He also wrote Matthew Lillard's and Freddie Prince Jr.'s Wing Commander. He's getting work. He's getting work. But listen, normally we're, I'm quite fair with, uh, with you know, these filmmakers because, hey, ho, who are we? But I'm telling you now, Devlin, me and you could write a better script. I, I did want to sort of try and, and fathom my way through the plot, just because when you get something like this, like an IP that you're trying to adapt, and the IP has essentially no plot. Like I say, I don't remember the plot of Mortal Kombat. From what I remember, I remember like two characters. I remember Scorp uh, um, Scorpion and Sub-Zero. And I remember that you did the get over here thing. And you, you basically just picked two sprites and you smashed them against each other and then you killed them and then that was it. So I don't know if, if Mortal Kombat, the game, has a plot. But... It does. It oh, does, okay. Devlin. It's the plot of this film. Is it? It's essentially right. the same. It is essentially the same. You are, you are, you've got um, alliances on both sides and they're fighting so... each other in a tournament. So all, thi all things considered... I mean, this film is, the framework has been taken from Enter the Dragon and yeah. every other sort of fighting tournament film, which is the right thing to do. Yeah. Because that's what's in the game. And that's what, you know, we've just talked about Street Fighter and how they kind of just went completely off piece and decided yeah, to do some so war. There's a, there's a war criminal <laughs> yeah. and uh, uh, he's got a flying boots or a little exactly. flying platform and, uh, and Kylie Minogue is there. Yeah, and Bison, I'm going to come and kick your ass. So yeah, all of that good stuff they do away with. In this film, they strip it right down to its bare bones. And we've talked about Joseph Campbell's Hero yes. with a, a Thousand Faces. 100% that Kevin Droney has just gone, mm, enter mm. the dragon and a little bit of that Star Wars magic. <laughs> and we will just create this very, very functional, I'm not going to say serviceable, just functioning plot that means that we can then get two two characters that you know from the game to just fight it, it does make a lot more sense 
that they've had to pull the the meta the the overarching narrative out of the game because that is the thing that makes no sense when wedged in with you know trying to create a, a personal journey for you know characters need an arc otherwise they're not a character so yeah, there's no arcs in this there's no well there's a there's there's superficially there is but I they mean, ver- they verbally tell the character what their want and or need is uh, in a scene <laughs> and then uh, another scene will they will say and th- at this point you still have not this is why you're acting wrong because of the thing that's not right in your life and then at the end it's you've overcome it but at no point are they actually tripped up by the things that are supposed to be tripping them up so should we just talk about the first thing that you see now i had a question straight away is this the first film in cinematic history which calls out the title before the financiers (laughs) i think so unless maybe i don't know maybe at the start of like Shawshank Redemption, somebody does just shout, Shawshank Redemption! <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think so. No, it's... it's. Uh, let's talk about this song, because I used it in the intro, and a bit like the film, if I could, I'd use it every time there's a scene. I want to lie, I've been listening to the Mortal Kombat soundtrack <laughs> all and it is bloody brilliant. It is. I mean, so I didn't, I didn't realise, I was a, a little read about this, and I didn't realise that Two Unlimited were not a thing in the States. So Americans are genuinely surprised when they learn that this um, uh, uh, theme tune is completely ripped off. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a Belgian techno group, and they've taken Two Unlimited's track, No Limits, and they have changed the last two notes. They basically just reversed them as well. Uh-huh, it, was, yeah. it reminds me of that really famous bit of video footage of... Um, uh, Vanilla Ice trying to explain to a reporter why the baseline to his song isn't ripped off from Under Pressure by Queen. This was making it different. It's totally different. It's a rap song. It doesn't sound anything like theirs. And just to prove his point, Vanilla breaks it down and sings the dings. Ding, 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 diggy, ding, ding. Ding, 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 diggy, ding, ding. Ding, 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 ding. That's the way theirs goes. Ours goes ding, 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 diggy, ding, ding. Ding, 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 diggy, ding, ding. That little bitty change. It's not the same. That you can that you can get away with just reversing two notes and then throwing in lots of annoying yelling sounds from a game. Oh, it's not annoying. It's, oh, no, no. It, um, so, yeah, it, it's it's a very confident move to start your, your film like that. I, I'm going to give Paul W.S. Anderson some serious credit because he he's clearly got the pulse of the people at this time because I think that's one of the reasons why this film was so bloody successful because this song is, is corking. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't something that that had been in a film before. If you try and imagine this film with a a relatively generic bombastic uh, orchestral score, it's going to, it's not going to have the distinct kind of feel that it ends up with. No. And it'll be noticeable how, um, how lacking some of the actors are in the fight. Yes. Whereas this, it, it, yeah, you're right. It does give it like a gives it a real propulsion and kind of predates, um, you know, the Matrix. Yo, let's let's calm down a bit. Definitely. A little bit, a little bit. No, like I'm just saying, I'm not saying that uh, that it's that it's a pre a precursor to. It. I'm just saying maybe it latched onto a thing 
that was kind of bubbling up in the collective unconscious that people didn't really know that they wanted and then when they got it they wanted more of it so in these in this opening opening scene uh shang song is fighting a character called chan who is not in the games he's the brother of Liu kang yes. and they're fighting at the temple of light and i guess it's a dream sequence or a vision because the way that difficult it's to say difficult to say because yeah. it's it's shot in slow-mo the camera's tilted the whole time which is implying visually that it's a dream of some sort mm. and also that the sheng uh, sheng sung looks directly down the camera at the end of the fight he does he's great isn't he Tagawa. yeah oh he's great um <laughs> yeah and we also cut to Liu kang in uh, some sort of neon green room he, go, he wakes up and go and goes to check his uh his message he just wants to make sure he just wants to make sure he got it all the first time he read it brother oh, dead come home <laughs> You know what it reminded me of? You remember in the office when uh, Dawn recounts uh, how she uh, she got engaged to Lee, and she's like, "Oh, he had to pay by the word." So it just said, <laughs> "Lee loved Dawn." Marriage question mark. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's a very. Well, I was just going to say that the fight scene before um, it introduces a lot of the things that we're going to see in some of the future fight scenes. The main one being an outrageous amount of foley sound. Yeah. It sounds like that poor kid's entire skeleton is made out of polos. He <laughs> <laughs> keeps just breaking everything. Every time he grabs him, it's like 15 bones go. Well, I tell you the one thing you do realize if you're a fan of the property, you're not going to get any blood and guts in this film. It's not going to happen. No, no, we're, we're going PG-13. We're going PG-13. Makes sense because if you're going to make this an R-rated film, then the target demographic you want actually can't go and see the film you know eight, no, year, eight year old me can't watch mortal Kombat. and also you know how um uh sometimes we would say you know you're, you're kind of compromising the vision of what you wanted to have by by cutting out a, a central tenet of it you know it's like you're really betraying your artistic vision but for fuck's <laughs> sake it's mortal Kombat. yeah like, <laughs> the entire purpose of this is to fleece people for money there's no themes to really unpack we've got to look at this mm. now as a product and how well it achieves i guess its goals as wise as the uh, little bon mots of lord raiden can be i don't know whether there's any life lessons to be mined from no, this exactly we are then introduced to sonia who is played mm. by bridget wilson sampras or bridget wilson at the time noah best from last action hero and uh, billy billy yes. madison yeah. Do you want to know who the original actress who was cast? I saw this, but other people might not. So, yeah, I do want to know. So, originally, Cameron Diaz was cast in the role. She broke, uh, <laughs> she broke her wrist uh, during training. So, Bridget Wilson was, was sort of She's drafted out. in a few weeks before production. And, yeah. and it kind of shows. Because she was, um, it was a new, you know, it's New Line Cinema as well as, as was The Mask, right? So, that was the idea that... They saw her dailies on the mask. Bridget Wilson, I feel I feel kind of bad for her because... She's very young in this, She's right? really young. She's not got the physicality to do the martial arts, nor does she have the time to do the training. And a character is... They're all broadly drawn, but, but she, she is given the short shrift because her arc, yep. if there is one, is completed about 30 minutes into the film. <laughs> it is. And from... I, I don't. I wrote down what um, what Raiden says to them. That's you know the uh, the thing that that they all need to overcome. But to say the, something about uh, 
it's basically the same thing as Liu Kang's though, which is, you know, a, a revenge narrative, except that we don't know, we don't know what she is. We, uh, is she a SWAT team? I, I, I went with Maybe? SWAT because of the all black and the shotgun and the yeah. cap, but yeah. But why, why would you be marauding through a, uh, a Hong Kong industrial metal club? smashing random punters in the face with the butt of your gun as you go. I uh, I was getting the Ace Ventura vibe, you know, where it's like, excuse me, is Greg here? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, she was like, yeah, she just keeps going through. And, and the the soundtrack, again, Foley artist going, working overtime, makes it sound like she's smashing all these dudes in the face, but you don't really see it because there's no coverage and there's lots of whip pens. Uh, also, this club is in Hong Kong, but I don't remember anyone being Asian. No, not really, not really. In fact, the um, one of the one of the more interesting things about the film is definitely what's going on in the background because there's there's some funny stuff to, to <laughs> we, we, we point it out as we go through the film. But if you uh, if you get kind of bored with what's going on with our central characters, just have a look in the background because there is some funny stuff going some, on. Some great but extras she, work. But she sort of marauds through this club yeah. and uh, she's looking for Kano. And like you said, it's another revenge narrative. Mm. I think that's the only thing they've got. No one seems to care that they're shooting up goons in this club, yep. which seems seems pretty odd. Well, there's, there's a, um, it, it's so early in the film and I'm already kind of squinting at the screen and wondering what the fuck is going on. Um, for one thing, I love that everyone says everyone's name multiple times when you first see them. Yes. That's, that's yes. good. Because I, I need to know who everyone is. Um, the other is, so she's been lured to the club by Kano because Kano killed her partner. Because apparently SWAT teams work in twos. Yeah. Um, they then deploy a faceless goon to try and machine gun the shit out of her, but they definitely don't want her dead because nope. And. But she and then she shoots him with with a shotgun. But he's got a bulletproof vest. But he dies anyway. Yeah, we don't want to we don't want to kill anyone. But he, but he dies film. anyway. No. I, I assume. Yeah. Which he he dies ah, in the in the manner of the uh, the naked gun guys. Oh, I'm so glad. You know, we don't we don't discuss uh, our notes or our readings of the film. <laughs> but that is the exact same thing I wrote down. <laughs> okay, who else here is almost dead? <laughs> Uh, the game's quite graphic and violent and it does actually have some backstory for each character Uh, yeah i don't know whether it is necessarily in the spirit of the game but it's certainly tapping into the demographic again they definitely they know who their target audience is teenage boys i would suggest and they are catering for them big time because this is big dumb slock it's it's very simplistic in its presentation and completely impenetrable in its actual mythology which probably goes along with most of the stuff like um i would imagine that the overarching narrative for i don't know he-man and the masters of the universe the tv show uh mask all these shows like the the actual overarching story probably made little to no sense certainly transformers the cartoon didn't make any sense oh yeah yeah but it didn't matter because you you knew you had your your heroes and your villains painted right there for you in 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 shades which have absolutely no subtlety whatsoever it's it's for it's for kids we're then introduced to johnny cage who in the game 
they based on Jean-Claude Van Damme. Jean-Claude was actually approached to play Johnny Cage. He turned it down. I can't verify whether or not that's true or not, but it certainly would make sense. And I'm surprised that he didn't actually take it because I think he would have made a pretty good Johnny Cage. Maybe he looked at the character as written on the page and said, shit, even for me, that's thin. And so we ended up with, um, I don't know this actor's name, actually. Lyndon Ashby. He was in Wyatt Earp. Kevin Costner's Wyatt Earp. You ever seen that? uh, Once, ages ago. So yeah, yeah, it's not really lodged in the memory particularly well. He's basically a soap actor. He was in Days of Our Lives. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, and he's got that. He's got that look. I think perfectly cast for the film. Yeah. Uh, I think I. I actually think that this sort of pseudo Han Solo character that they've written is probably the best one in the film. It's got the most to it. I mean, his jokes are terrible, but at least they are something. He, he's supposed to be a an egotistical arsehole. Yeah. Um. But but rugged likable rogue type you know like i said it very very much feels like he's drawn in the han solo mold yeah and he's he's trying to debunk the people that are calling him a fake we then see lu kang he's off to the temple of light he's set up as like a disbeliever this never really no. pays off in any way like he just seems to accept mortal combat and the mythology and the story Wait, and the prophecies he seems to reject and then loudly accept. Yes. Much to the annoyance of all of the extras who are wagging their fingers. <laughs> <laughs> just out of control. Just two lines of people waving their hands at nothing. His his performance, he's not very good. As a, he, okay, martial artist, athlete, ticks the box. Actor, nah. He's not terrible in the in the sense where he's completely unconvincing as a human being speaking to other human beings <laughs> which is honestly a low bar but there are so there are so very many films and so many actors that can't even clear that he can be on screen and convince you that he is at least a, 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 fun, a functioning human being who has had a conversation before he is the proto bruce lee character but he doesn't unfortunately, have any of Bruce Lee's charm, charisma, yeah. gravitas. He just doesn't have it. For a Bruce Lee sprite, he'll do, Yeah, he's I guess. fine. He's a handsome lad who can punch well. Yeah. We're then introduced to the God of Thunder, <laughs> Christopher Lambert, <laughs> in a little rice paddy hat and uh, beggar's clothes. What the fuck? We've, we've discussed this before about whitewashing. Remember we discussed yeah. it in Scarface? It's a mm-hmm. thing. What yeah. I don't get is this film has gone to great lengths to cast an Asian protagonist and an Asian villain. Why yeah. are we making Raiden Christopher Lambert, who's a Frenchman for one, but is, is also... He Belgian? I thought he's French. Maybe he is Belgian. Either way, Maybe, he's, yeah. he's terrible. I'm just going to say it now. <laughs> it doesn't matter which Francophone nation he happens to be from. He, he is. He's really bad in this. And it's uh, in very, very fascinating and confusing ways. Yeah, I, I've seen defenses of his characterization of Raiden. You know, he's fun. He's He knows what kind of film he's in. I don't, I don't agree with that at all. I think he no, doesn't know what he's, he's doing. He is all over the fucking <laughs> shop. The voice, for one thing, is is deeply off-putting. <laughs> you are being charming. 
He sounds like Ren from Ren and Stimpy. That's why you left the temple and ran away, isn't it? The great tournament was too much responsibility. But vengeance. That's so much simpler. And this isn't me being oversensitive, but the image of Raiden walking through these the Shaolin monk temple Ooh, yes. and having them bend to him as the god. I guess I get that he's the biggest star in this. Originally, they tried to get Sean Connery. I don't know if that's worse. If I wanted to, and I definitely don't want to, but you know, we're here to chat about this one, so we may as well. If um, if you were to try and come up with some piss weak defense for this as a decision, uh, basically they they need. Uh, a name actor. This is the easiest character to parachute a name actor into because he doesn't have to be on set very much. He's kind of, he's in and out. He's he's sprinkled throughout the narrative. Uh, and as we pointed out, always those exact points in the script where you need somebody to point out the themes of the script and to deliver, you know, boatloads of exposition. So thinking back to what, 94, 95, when they were making this, you probably couldn't name an Asian actor whose name is a draw for a mainstream audience. No, I agree. Um, I agree with that. Yeah. Which you know, Chow, Chow Young Fat isn't a thing yet. He's not a thing yet. No, it's, um, you would say probably Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and post that, then you get people sort of paying attention to to, to actors from you know Hong Kong and China and and whatnot. I don't know what his deal is. I really don't. Like, as a character, is he supposed to be... Because this is kind of a problem with the entire story of the film, which is that who's operating the Mortal Kombat tournament? Like, who sets the rules? They keep mentioning rules, rules of Mortal Kombat. Mm. There are no rules! That, <laughs> that seems to be the, the big thing. And, and one, of the, one of the really frustrating aspects of this entire script is... You know, like I said, we're not after high concept art here. But what I do want is something that makes literal sense. Just, just tell me a story yeah. that makes some sense. And we internal just, logic. Internal logic. Is fine. We, we've discussed it in other genres, sci-fi, in horror films. You know, you need yeah. the film needs to have a consistent internal logic. This just doesn't care. And it it chooses when it wants to make some form of sense, and then if it needs a fight or if it needs something to happen to a character, I'll just do away with the rules. And like you say, it, it just seems to make yeah. There's there's no they've got a structure that's sound, but within that structure, yeah. ca- chaos just chaos is ensuing, yes. and uh, and 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 no more than uh, than the next scene when we're in Hong Kong and the boats. Uh, coming mm-hmm. in, you know, we get, we get our characters all com- conver- converging into one location, and uh, yep. Johnny Cage runs into. He's not the fourth member. Uh, he's just <laughs> someone. Uh, Artlene. I mean, I didn't even care to look at. Bless him. I, I'm not even going to say he's an actor because he's definitely just a martial artist that they've roped in. Uh, yeah. Who plays him? But he is the egregious token black character that will die to service our white hero characters they don't even disguise it no he is in he is introduced in one scene where the guy 
you know, we, we've said that characters are saying each other's names as soon as they meet, because that's how you as an audience get to learn what their names are. And in a, in a thing like this, not that I feel like we needed to learn the name of Jax because he disappeared <laughs> around the 11 minute mark, having yeah. said about four sentences. Well, pre- preview for the next film. Oh, yeah, that's true. And uh, and but in this one, it's just you are Art Lean and then reaction shot of a man nodding and smiling. <laughs> Yes, I am. Thank you very much. I will now be leaving this scene. Uh, once, once on the boat, our trio kind of meet up. They've, you know, we've had a little uh, bit of interplay. Johnny Cage with Sonya. Now, one of the things I'm going to mention, and I'm just going to get on my high horse, and then I'm going to come down and no longer virtue signal. But a lot of the contemporary reviews talk about how near the end. Sonya is then objectified as a character, as a female character. Not near the end. Minute three. Because throughout this whole film, all the other characters will make unwanted and unnecessary remarks about Sonya, about her beauty, about, you know, oh, I'd love to, you know, share a cabin with her. Shan Sung, I mean, in his villainy, is complete and utter sex pest he's yeah. constantly making these comments regarding how i would love to show you around the boats it's an honor to finally meet you sonia shang song at your service i'm looking for a murderer he boarded this ship i'm impressed but it is my boat and if you'd like a tour i'd love to give it to you myself hey be nice to the lady. She's just doing her job. When I want backup, I'll radio for it. When they do relate to her, it's always via the prism of her being a woman. That exactly. Is, that is her role in the in the film, is to be woman. It, I had a bit of a problem with it, I've got to say. Well, yeah. She was a terribly written character. In a film of badly written characters, she she had... She comes out, she comes out the worst. Maybe Arlene... Yeah. Hipster, oh. but, yeah. <laughs> Poor Art. I feel really bad for Art Lean. I wonder what he was up to, you know, yeah. during the the amount of time and the, the the narrative just forgot that he existed. I wonder what what he what he did. I wrote an entire subplot for Art Lean uh, in my mind during the film. Oh, that's good. Hey, yeah. maybe you could release one of those novelizations that nobody should ever read. Yeah, you could illustrate it. Next thing you know, we've got a comic. Brilliant. Then we are introduced to probably the most iconic characters within the game. Sub-Zero and Scorpion are ninja characters, one being blue, one being yellow. Sub-Zero able to manipulate ice, I guess, freeze mm-hmm. stuff. And Scorpion, who in this film has a sort of dragon-like creature come out of the palm of his yeah. hand. Not sure about the beak, to be honest. Let's talk about the CGI and let's just get it out of the way. Yeah. It's not great. I don't think, I don't think it's... I don't think it's that bad, considering the budget and the time that they would have had. Especially, what, like um, two or three years after New Line Cinema's other CGI smash hit, The Lawnmower Man, (laughs) you think this is light years ahead of what was going on in that film. I tend to see that Jurassic Park gets referenced all the time. Well, Jurassic Park was made in 93 and the CGI still holds up. They had a lot of money. They had a lot of money. That's true. And they had a lot of time. Mortal Kombat, I don't think, was afforded either. And also, not to mention that Paul W.S. Anderson, this is his second film, first mm-hmm. major American film, 
So we're dealing with a director who's pretty inexperienced because some yeah. of the choices he makes are the wrong ones when you've got CGI that's this bad. You know, he shows them yeah. front and center. He doesn't hide them in and amongst smoke or anything like that. He he basically shows them in all their terribly pixelated yeah. uh, you know, form. And I think that would be probably something that you would not do if you'd had any experience with it. But yeah. it doesn't pull me out of the film at all. No, it's fine. It feels of a piece. I mean, we're not we're not dealing with something where it's like, oh, this film would have been utterly breathtaking if it weren't for the fact that I didn't really believe that they were walking up a big temple. It's like, I don't matter. It's 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 stupid, and I'd I'd like it to look unrealistic and ridiculous. Mm-hmm. No, I think that fits the tone way better. Do you think they just shoved that in at that point so that? people wouldn't get really frustrated and bored that they haven't seen the two characters that they know. Yeah, I do actually. I think because okay. it's, because it's totally unnecessary, but I, what, what I realized when revisiting this is there ain't actually that much action. Uh, certainly no. in the first 35 minutes or so, there's a lot of data dumps and Raiden delivers one uh, on the, um, on the deck of the boat that they're on. The delightful deck of that incredibly designed boat. Yeah, I mean, it, it. it's almost like the boat in Hook. You know, you can, you can actually, I think if, you, uh, if you've if you got it in 4K, you can actually see the black drapes in the background. You know, I genuinely enjoy the sets in this. Like I say, I find that the, they've got a real charm to them, a lot of these sets. Yes. They're, they're just huge monuments to the power of styrofoam. And this is something that a lot of films will cheap out on. And they'll just dress one corner of a huge soundstage, and they they went all out on this. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a lot of a lot of work that's gone into it, no matter how kind of cheesy some of it does look. I like it. But Raiden delivers this data dump, and this is where I've mentioned earlier that I I think Lambert's terrible. I think the reason why is let's go to Lord of the Rings, Sir Ian McKellen, Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian. Yes. He has to deliver loads of hokey mumbo-jumbo dialogue in Lord of the Rings. But because he's got the gravitas, because he's a seasoned veteran, you're able to believe it. You know, yeah. Frodo, the One Ring, all that kind of stuff. In the wrong hands, that just comes out as like pure drivel. There's a line reading in, in this, which is one of the strangest things I've ever heard, which is when he, uh, he says something like, uh, the fate of the world will depend on you, and then just laughs at them. And then apologizes? The fate of billions will depend upon you. <laughs> Sorry. It happens it happens twice in the film as well. There's a there's a a moment later on where um uh Raiden is celebrating um Johnny Cage dick punching somebody and he's and he's celebrating wildly and then apologizes to the guy standing next to him. Mm-hmm. So it's it's deeply strange. I read in some interviews with Paul W. S. Anderson and Lyndon Ashby that he encouraged ad libs, uh, he encouraged rewrites of dialogue on the set. When you do that and you haven't got Larry David, you might yeah. get lines and delivery like Crystal Lambert on the yeah. boat because well, you, all you, it, all it his really mugging, cheap, yeah, cheap mugging. Exactly. You, you're trying to get a reaction in that exact moment from just the crew in front of you. And that doesn't really translate. We then uh, we then see our characters transported onto the island, which is Thailand, which I've been. It's a beautiful place. And if you didn't know it was Thailand, I mentioned extras. When they're on the beach, just have a look at the extras. They're all 
of Thai. <laughs> Thai nationality. Uh, yeah, it's brilliant. It's weird how little we hear about the rest of the fighters, to be honest. Yeah, they're, they're scattered throughout it, sort of, but I, a little bit of um, uh, an introduction to some of these other characters maybe wouldn't have gone amiss, even if, you know, some of them just looked cool or had like one recognizable thing or just any indication that other people were, were involved in this tournament. Yeah. And maybe some indication of what the scale of it is would have been nice. Yeah, you've, you've hit on uh, one of my big points, which is we have the Enter the Dragon framework. We need some form of table, something to denote yeah. progress or who's winning. Are we, are we in a kind of there's 30 fights and it's first to 30 or how does it work? Mm. And because they don't bother to do that because they, they do it in Bloodsport. Um, it's, it's not great in, Blood, in Van Damme's Bloodsport, but you see names against names and you see those names go up the, the ladder or up the table uh, within, yeah. within the arena. They could have just done something like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it would, it would have looked, you know, a bit silly, but brilliant it's supposed to look silly yes exactly it's all it's all silly just you know yeah something to orientate you throughout what's going on because otherwise when they do finally start having fights you don't really know why Mm -hmm. no absolutely like i don't know who this dude the Liu kang fights is one of the characters we're introduced to she has no real bearing in the plot other than she also delivers some kind of mumbo jumbo (laughs) pseudo philosophical bullshit is princess katana she is completely superfluous i don't really understand why she's here and and then we have a cgi character who is terrible which is reptile yeah in the game he was a secret character so fans would have been like oh my god this would have been an omg moment in 95 I was OM. Did he look like? Did he look anything like this? No, no. He's just a green. He's he's a green Sub Zero. He's right? a green. He's just a yeah. He's a palette swapped yeah. green version of Sub Zero and Scorpion. And when he does take his hat off, he has got like a lizard head, almost Goomba-ish. Oh, okay. But that's mm. about it. But yeah, this CGI is uh, yes, it's, it's dreadful. Then we have a dinner scene where Sub Zero shows off his his ice skills yeah and did you get it's not the... really a fight is no it? it's not a fight did you get the sense that he's referencing indiana jones you know because there's a lot of posing there's a lot oh. of kicking and then mm. as he runs towards him he just a bit like indiana jones just shoots him and then that's it dad uh, that's what i yeah. that's how i read it it's uh, it's a it's a strange one you're building up i mean i guess you're building up this character and and you are showing the fantastical you know, the elements thing, the thing yeah the thing that he does which is that sub-zero makes things freeze and yeah you know sub-zero was probably the most popular character in the in the, the game and it does so, give uh it does give tagawa a chance to to deliver one of the many catchphrases from the game mm. flawless victory yeah. like, mm, not really much he delivers fight, it, is it no he delivers it very well um all of the stuff like that when they do go ahead and, and uh, reference dialogue straight from the game is uh, is terrible, especially the stuff with Scorpion. <laughs> That's inexplicable, but it's fine because it's very stupid. <laughs> but, um, 
Our uh, our characters leave art. He was at the dinner scene. Uh, and oh, was he? Yeah, he was at the. You, you might not have noticed. Uh, He's just there. Um, no, I didn't see him. And and they they go through like a maze, and this does feel like the story sort of treading water a little bit. Uh, it yeah, it's it's quite early, but it does like start to sag a you bit. Just, you go, and then they they pop up in a in a room, and they spy on um, Kano, and then we're introduced talking. to Prince Goro, and oh, yeah. my attention was immediately peaked once again. <laughs> What what do we think of uh, of the puppetry and the fact that this is a animatronic man in a suit character? I think it's fantastic. I think it's so weird and so unexpected that I think it's great. Even though it looks so clumsy and cumbersome, um, and the face looks like a Johnny Cab. Oh, did you go Johnny Cab? You know who I thought he looked like? <laughs> Former Labour MP and Strictly Come Dancing Pratt, Ed Balls. <laughs> Ed Balls. Honestly, I'll tell you what... If only you'd have told me that before I watched it. Oh, no, I'm going to... Well, that I'd, seem so much better. I'll tell you what I do when we when the episode comes out. I'll uh, I'll do a compare and contrast on Twitter. Okay. See what people Good. think. But yeah, I just couldn't help getting... Don't forget to tag Ed Balls so that he can write his own name on Twitter again. <laughs> but yeah, um, there's definitely an inherent charm, isn't there, when you um, yeah. when you have this type of puppetry? Do you like that? Do you like the 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 execution of it? Or I think I think it's charming. They if you're gonna have a reason why CGI characters are now the thing, and you don't go back to this kind of practical effect. It is because you are limited in what you can achieve. And with Goro, you know, the lip syncing isn't quite right. Fine, I'll go with that. But when it comes down to using him as a fighter, it's, yeah, it it just doesn't work um, because he can't do any real fighting. Uh, I think Anderson does the best to cut round it and give you angles. That means that you, you know, you can't peer behind the curtain. It's, It's quite obviously a man being punched by a, a, a rubber thing. The camera sort of sits behind him as well, doesn't it? So you see the, you just see the hands swinging about and pretty much what they, what they can do with him is make him raise his arms and yell a lot. So our trio um, end up looping in this maze. And then we didn't mention them before uh, the red hooded kind of goons that just populate this Island Shang Tsung. Yes. Sort of minions. And uh, and they just have a three on nine fight, and it's really quite dull and unexciting. It's, yeah, it's it's a it's it's pretty it's pretty boring, but it, it's perfunctory. And like you say, what were we at like the thirty something minute mark? We've not really had enough fighting yet. Nope, nope. And 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 I think this is where it exposes. Yeah, I think Lyndon Ashby does a serviceable job. Robin Shaw is clearly the martial artist and amongst this cast. Yeah, they they focus on him a lot more than they do everyone else. The main stunt coordinator was a guy called Patty Johnson on the film, uh, an mm-hmm. American, which mm, I think they could have probably gone to Asia for a better martial artist. But he yeah. he's basically worked on all quite a lot of um, big American productions, Karate Kid, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, there is credentials, but. These yeah. these this choreography is is pretty piss poor. Um, I I remember it being so much better. Stuff like this does improve over time, 
you know, people build on the thing. So, you know, stuff that was very, very impressive a couple of decades ago is, has been kind of overshadowed now. But even being generous in that respect, yeah, this one especially is it's pretty dull. It is pretty dull. And, and after this scene, uh, you know, Raiden does some more mugging. He's got like his own catchphrase, which is, I don't think so. <laughs> um, but then we're into the fights and we're into a sequence of fights. I think it's, it's a four or five in a row. So we have no um, no story whatsoever now. We're just going to go for fight, yeah. fight, fight, well, he, fight, he, fight. Yeah, we get Shang Tsung sitting in a, a throne just saying it's, you know, let mortal combat begin. So that's letting the audience know that now it's like the 40-ish minute mark. It's just fights all the way down. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and Liu Kang's going to fight. Now, you remember, this is the first fight within this film. And he's fighting some unknown, unnamed, it looked like a human. So I was like, well, who yeah. is this guy? Is it, was he... just, it was just a dude, except that sometimes he made a, a noise like a lion. Yeah. Is he a warrior of Outworld or is he a fellow human and they're just having a fight with each other? Hmm. And, you know, clearly he's a martial artist and it's a stick fight. It's fine. You know, Robin Shao's yeah. got the moves. Leaning very, very heavily on the slow-mo. Yeah, yeah. And again, Anderson cutting round it, fast editing, even though we have got some slow-mo. It's just really, I just think it's really poor. I just, I, yeah, I can't, yeah, I can't say anything for it. And you know, one of the things that um, I wanted to mention, because I'm not going to go over this out during each fight, but one of the one of the things that I think is really important when you've got fight choreography, because I'm quite a big fan of fighting films, is that it should really be used like dialogue. It should be there to inform the audience, reveal character. But in this film, it's merely just there to just service a fight. Um, yeah. You know, again, I'm going to go to Bruce Lee in like the big boss or, you know, into the dragon and, and even blood sport, you know, I don't want to give Van Damme too much praise, but even the fight choreography in that tells a individual story in this. I, yeah, maybe I'm being harsh, but I just don't get any of that. So I was, I no. tuned out of a lot of these fights are tuned out. Well, the yeah, the first one is is just there to sort of set up the thing that apparently Shang Tsung eats the souls of the people who die. Mm-hmm. So that sets that up. Uh, the second fight is the very, very clumsy Sonya versus Kano fight, yep. which, as you pointed out, Compl- just closes her narrative arc. Yeah, <laughs> like just Sonya. Um, and it, it's uh, it's mentioned later on when um, when Raiden's detailing all their flaws in the sort of second act drag where he says that she doesn't trust anyone. And that means that she'll fail. But it's like, well, but she's already done the one thing she set out to do. Yeah. She's done all right. On her she, own. Did it, she did it fine. She yeah. with her shins, <laughs> <laughs> she broke his neck with her shins and that was it. Yeah. Um, she also says the phrase study this, which is uh, fantastic. Yeah. Because that's what you can do in the nineties. You could just say, anything this and it was it was considered a zinger <laughs> um after the sonia kato fight we have johnny cage versus scorpion which starts mm. off in this uh, sort of endless forest which is quite cool uh, i actually quite yeah. i quite like this one this is one of the this is one of the best fights in the film yeah the forest bit is strange because nothing really happens no and what's weird is that the fight pretty much in the original cut was just in that forest. Oh, okay. and then after test screenings, the audiences were like, 
bit like what we've just said. Where's the fights? Uh, yeah. We want more fights. So they extended it, and that's why they go into sort of this horror dungeon of bamboo, and they yeah. and they fight there. I actually think this is it's... yeah, it's one of the best ones uh, in the oh, film. Oh yeah, yeah, it's it's like a the whole thing is just a bad eighties, a uh, bad nineties metal album cover come to life. Yeah, yeah, it is an Iron Maiden cover, isn't it? Actually, yeah, you're right. And and there's a little bit of gymnastics in there. No reason yeah. why. I don't even think he even gains an advantage doing his little gymnastics move, apart from uh, maybe no. tiring out. But then uh, then we do have something that is from the game, which is Scorpion. Uh, reveal, you know, takes his uh, mask off, revealing a skull. Mm-hmm. Johnny Cage knows he's going to breathe fire on him. I'm not going to get into the nitpicking stage, but he knows. So he grabs yep. a shield that's luckily to hand and then blocks it and spears him. Spears him slash uh, yes. gets him with this. And he, he bleeds lava and fire. Yeah, and it's one of the only times in the film that you're going to get a sort of gory fatality mm. that's reminiscent of the actual game. Um, I liked it. I, I thought it was quite cool. It was super fun. Yeah, it was fun. His he, ex- he explodes. Yeah. And, and his jawbone ends up scattered across the floor. What's not to love? He does a Danny Glover run away, jump away from the explosion. Yep. It's yeah, I, I really liked it. And the, the leaving of the autograph is again, another reference to the game. Uh, that's something that he does during his fatalities. So oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was pretty good. I enjoyed it. Because I, because uh, yeah, when I saw that, I I didn't understand what was going on. And then we come to Liu Kang versus Princess Katana, which seems to be counterproductive to what Shansung wanted, which was to keep them apart. Let's bring Indeed. them together. Um, also, apparently, if we're talking about the rules, I got the impression that these fights were supposed to be fights to the death, <laughs> but they're also not. If the two people don't want to, no. If you were, uh, <laughs> you just they decide. just stop. They just stop it and then put Liu Kang in a different fight against Sub-Zero. Yeah, but do do you are forgetting a very important element of the oh, fight. Yeah. So, Vital. Yeah, so uh, Princess Katana's function within this story is to give pearls of wisdom to Liu Kang because, let's face it, we haven't really talked much about his character because there isn't one, but one thing he definitely is, is dumb because he yeah. he cannot comprehend what use the element which brings life. In your next fight. To win your next match, use the element which brings life. What? Kitana! So much so that he needs to be reminded in the fight. Which means that also, so she knows that his next fight is Sub-Zero? Yeah, again, no structure, no rules, just... It's fine. (laughs) Fight! But yeah, so Liu Kang's going to fight Sub-Zero. This one... I like the way it shots. But again, mm. it's really quite naff to coin a 90s phrase because once Sub-Zero realizes he can't beat him in hand-to-hand combat, he just decides to create an ice globe to, yes. to freeze him. And that just feels like cheating, but it's also really terribly undramatic and quite slow. <laughs> and I would have thought yeah. the one thing you don't want to do in a fight is just stand there, but he does. It's weird. It's 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 very strange. I don't know what he's hoping for that his his blue bubble of cold is just going to get big enough to engulf <laughs> yeah. Liu Kang. I guess. Yeah, um, it's. Odd. I don't know what would happen if Liu Kang just left the room. Yeah, or, and then continued walking. Or what would have happened if Raiden hadn't sneakily left a bucket of uh, of water? 
the element yeah. which does bring life. And there's no water left in that bucket, I'm telling you now, the way he flings that around. But no. one of the things that really does, again, hearken to the fact that they are pandering to a young teenage audience is that they need to spell this shit <laughs> out. So Princess yeah. Katara just shows her face during the yeah. fight. And then we get a close-up of her and a voiceover with the same line that she delivered not but one scene earlier. And and we also have to have him out loud saying the word water <laughs> when, while, look, while looking at some water. Oh. But he flings that bucket and it creates an ice dagger, impales Sub-Zero yeah. to the wall. Again, quite a groovy effect. I quite like it. I guess that's why people enjoy it, maybe, because they can just, yeah. you know, switch your brain off kind of film, maybe. Mm. Oh no! I mean, uh, you know, once it when it gets to a place where it's kind of barreling through, I find it all, you know, very entertaining. Especially just there are moments, mainly Christopher Lambert re- related moments, where <laughs> I did, and it's very rare that I would do this. Just laugh on my own while watching this on a laptop. Prince Goro is unleashed. We get a montage of I counted it twenty twenty people get get killed. Again, just fall on pebbles. Just falling on pebbles. You know, it's yeah. PG-13. We ain't going to show 20 people getting killed. And then Goro's going to fight our beloved Art Lean. Oh. And you know what I would have done? And I, I get that this is PG-13 and we're in sort of kiddie land. But why doesn't why didn't Goro kill one of our three? How good would that have been? How much better would that have been? How much? Well, yeah. Wouldn't that have increased the dramatic stakes? Maybe, I don't know, maybe Sonya fights Goro and is killed because, you know, she didn't learn a lesson about... Or maybe she didn't even to get, need to get killed. Maybe because these rules are so, um, you know, so easily broken. She's fighting yes. Goro, she's getting her ass kicked, and then Johnny Cage comes in and helps her. Therefore, she learns her lesson of, you know what, sometimes you need to ask for help. Something. Mm. Instead, we're yeah. just going to kill this character that we have spent zero time with. And when Goro dispenses of Art Lean, for some reason, our characters are torn up about this. Oh, Sonya and Johnny are both just horrified. They are devastated at the death of Art Lean. (laughs) Especially, and it's such a letdown of a flaccid ending. Like, it builds up, you know, he just gets punched in the face a lot. That's it. And then the end of the fight is that he gets punched in the face another time. Yeah. I was expecting, I mean, the dude's got four arms. I was expecting him to rip him into quarters. Yeah, that wouldn't. Well, again, we're you know PG thirteen. We're not going to do that. But yeah. I think you could have found another way of of having the puppet do something <laughs> a little bit more satisfying than just like you said, lifting him up and giving him a bit of a punch. Yeah. But then this is when you know the tables have turned as far as our characters now realise that they they must listen to Raiden, who's been giving them this sort of pseudo crappy philosophical. You must face your deepest fears and all that kind of jazz. You know, Liu Kang meditates on Raiden's mm-hmm. advice about how he can't beat Shansung until yeah. he accepts he is the one, which we never and really also, got into. You know, you got to remind, uh, yeah, that's true. You got to remind the audience that he had a brother as well. Oh yeah. yeah. Good. Don't forget about Chan. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, Sonya's reminded, you know, you must ask for help. And then yeah. what, what's really funny again, the film having no internal logic is that Raiden tells Johnny Cage, you rush in too quick. And then he rushes in too quick. He challenges mm-hmm. Goro to a fight and wins. Yeah. And uh, after that, because uh, Raiden's in that scene, 
he says, uh, uh, he says, I don't think so. You can't do it. And then when he does it, after he leaves, he smiles to himself <laughs> it says, and is like, finally, they're doing the thing. As, I d- is, is he mental? <laughs> I, don't, I can't fathom this guy's in anything. His, his actions, his intentions. I, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's deeply, deeply confusing, but it's a lot more fun to watch somebody not know what the fuck they're doing. Yeah, there's definitely there's definitely something fun about watching something so stupid, yeah, play out. The, the because guy, the um the, the also when when they do the the challenge, this is where we learn that there there are no rules. So, <laughs> I want to challenge Goro. Okay, but Shang Tsung says, uh, I then get to challenge the winner, or anybody else. What are these rules? Like they needed to be written down, like the Ten Commandments yeah. somewhere. We needed to have that scene where someone reads them out loud, so we know what's going on. But yeah, this doesn't make any sense. And just before the fight, in fact, I slightly jumped ahead. We get this tender moment at, at sort of sunset between Johnny Cage and Sonya. Oof, awful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's probably one of our only dramatic scenes. I mean, I hesitate, yeah. hesitate to say dramatic, but I guess if you were to try and defend this, which I was doing in my head, I was thinking, right, what's our audience? And what's, you know, what's the, our audience's expectations? And I guess the way that the, the Sonia and Johnny have interacted throughout the film has been almost sort of playground, boy-girl stuff. You know, you hit mm-hmm. me. You know, it was almost like it reminded me of when I was in primary school, and the girls that I really liked were the ones that I sort of picked on because that was my way of showing that listen, I really like you. And right. it kind of felt like that. Kind of felt like I'm going to give you, you know, Johnny Cage constantly is is dropping these like unwanted sexual advances, making yeah. these quirks and comments, and like I said, it's very Han Solo-ish. Mm-hmm. And and she in this scene feels very Princess Leia. With the oh, don't you dare do this! Don't you dare put this on me, Johnny Cage. Yeah, I think that's what they were going for. And to be fair, it's servicing the audience that they are catering to. Never been beaten. You go up against him, he'll kill you. Well, if I don't, then he'll finish us off one at a time. If I challenge him now, I can finish this. You're making this all sound really simple, and it isn't. Yeah, it is. Because I can't let what happened to Art happen to you. Not to you. Oh, don't you dare do this to protect me, Johnny Cage. Trust me. I got a plan. Oh, I can't believe this. You are the most egotistical, self-deluded person I have ever met. Yeah, well, you forgot good-looking. Like yeah, I guess it's it's kind of out of nowhere when he decides that he's going to take the challenge because he doesn't want what happened to his beloved best friend Artleen <laughs> to happen to her. It, it, you know what it is? It's the second line, isn't it? When he says, um, "I can't let what happened to Art happen to you, mm-hmm. not not to you." What? <laughs> yeah. Where did that come from? Yeah, it's um, nowhere. No, nowhere. I mean, it's funny. Again, I, I, I chuckled out loud when that line was delivered, but mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm almost um, trying to 
like think and transport myself back into 95 and think what was i thinking because oh, i thought this film was the best film i'd ever seen yeah uh, when i was 10 and then we get the johnny cage versus goro fight the limitations of the puppet is on display and you know they have a uh just a, a thuddingly obvious callback to the first fight scene um and and a cock punch yeah, well, it's in the game, and it's it's, oh, okay. and it's a move that um, Van Damme does in Bloodsport. He does the cock punch, but God Almighty does Ed Balls as Goro just groan about it for like three minutes. He sells it. He does sell it. <laughs> Give the puppet an Oscar. But there really isn't much to say about these fights. Like I said, if you're here for the action in this film, I think it's pretty it's pretty lame. And this is where, again, Paul Anderson... Or Paul W. S. Anderson, apologies, Paul, uh, really should be looking at sort of gender politics coding within mm-hmm. within cinema. I know he's making a dumb fighting film for teenage boys, but when Shan Sung's like holding her ponytail and using that as a as a way of restraining her, which is if it isn't, it certainly looks that way. And yep. then we've reduced this supposedly badass heroine to the princess in the tower, damsel in distress, yeah, call it what you will. White straight males dominate pop culture. And this is what we get with that domination. It's just this reduction of a female character to uh, mm. just be the thing that, you know, our male characters have got to save. A, I think there's a tendency to um, for people to try and defend it by saying that oh this is just you know traditional like we always talk about the joseph campbell thing this is just traditional storytelling and that's kind of that's kind of a cheap get out to be honest like you can do you can do anything you can still you know have a a a propulsive narrative without having to fall back on the on the cheapest tropes you can find but as we pointed out this is a story that needed to be written quickly around a property that didn't have a great deal of story to integrate so you know they do they pull on the yeah they pull the cheapest moves they can Liu Kang and Johnny Cage must go to Outworld and uh, Raiden cannot follow for reasons for reasons because he was only on set for a week (laughs) so and uh, we see Reptile follow them into Outworld and uh, and this is where we get a another additional uh, fight scene based on the test audience's feedback. And you can tell it's a later one because uh, it's a little more um, kinetic. Yep. Robin Shaw has choreographed this. And yep. uh, I would say it's probably... I prefer. I actually prefer Johnny Cage versus Scorpion, but it's... it's. Yeah, that one not... was, was dumb, stupid fun. This one is... Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a good... It's a good, solid... You know, it's long enough. It's not like they're trying to get, get out of the way. It's... You know, it, it moves around the space... It's got yeah. ebb and flow. It's 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 a decent little um, little scene. But I do like the uh, I do like the music in the fight as well. I've got to say we haven't really mentioned about the techno, but it is pulsing throughout, and it definitely does jolt you into when you're sort of feeling a little bit jaded by this film. All of a sudden, you know, someone will shout "Mortal Kombat," and all of a sudden you're like, "Ah, oh, a film!" Yeah. Liu Kang defeats Reptile, kicks his ass. He does a little somersault. He does. He, he flips and then he turns back into a statue from whence he came. Um, and but this time he's full of bugs. Which yeah. I know that this is something that I bring up too much, but may 
you could consider it the second Halloween three season of the witch reference. <laughs> the first being the, that you hear the Halloween three um, synth noise when the four guys in the suits are lined up to fight Johnny Cage at the beginning. You, you keep mentioning Halloween three season of the witch and references to it throughout our episodes. I think you're, I think you're stretching it there, buddy. I will leave it to the public opinion. I've said my piece. <laughs> And then we see Sonia, who is tied up. This is terrible, isn't it? She's the, had a blow dry. She, she's she's had dress. a blow dry. So someone's someone's dressed her. Someone's puffed up her hair. She looks a bit like Raquel Welsh. And and that's that's setting us up for a a, a silly last fight. A, a big um. We have uh, Sonia saying that her friends are going to come from her. So you know she's learnt to trust and. Lo and behold, they're already there. They pull the hoods off, and everyone challenges everyone. <laughs> yeah, it is like it is like um, kids in a playground again, isn't it? Yeah. No, I challenge you. No, and I challenge you. The the last one is 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 Lu and Cheng. So there we go. That's that's our last fight. So I guess his plan all along was to fight Sonya because he knows he'll win, or fight Johnny Cage because he knows he'll win. But Lu Kang pulls the no. I challenge you. And apparently some challenges are valid and some aren't. Yeah. Uh, we'll just, again, we'll just go with it. Conceit, whatever. Uh, halfway through, we just have um, a bunch of surrogate fighters who break out of some styrofoam on the floor. One of whom is Gerald Okamura. I know. I, I, I almost didn't recognize him because he was wearing clothes as opposed to black pants, but he is yeah. samurai cops. Showing his uh, <laughs> I did. I, I clocked it and I was like, Devon will spot that. Oh, yeah. But he loved it. As Liu Kang is fighting Shang Tsung in these stages, again, Princess Katana's only function is to tell the audience what this means, yeah. the pseudo-philosophy that we're going to throw in, which is he must... What's, what's the trio? Is it fight his... Uh, he has to... Um, he's, well, they say that he's running away from his destiny... There's also a thing about how he's too fixated on revenge. Yeah. Um, he has to, but this one, he has to face his worst fear. Yeah. But it's also, Which, it's not really a fear. It's the guilt over his brother's death. It's, you know, so just, just so you know, we kind of jumped ahead, but Shang Tsung, after these warriors come out and really put up no fight for Liu Kang, yeah. uh, Shang Tsung then shapeshifts into Chan and does the old, it's me. Lou, yeah. it's Chan. The fact that he even starts to fall for it makes him an idiot and oh. not particularly <laughs> a protagonist that you feel like cheering for. But then he pulls the, it can't be you, Chan. Yep. <laughs> and then that's it. That's how he's faced his worst fear. And then we have uh, more fighting. I'll give Tagawa something. I mean, he clearly knows martial arts. Uh, he's not great, but serviceable he's serviceable again the music is uh is basically our big driver it, this film suffers from films like the raid having come out yeah big time I and mean, even I think, you know there were films kind of around the same era that were oh yeah uh, well the uh, matrix you know i don't know mention the matrix but crouching tiger hidden dragger those kind of yeah. things you just... yeah there are a couple of years after but yeah you can tell this is you know it's it's fairly stayed fairly standard Hollywood blockbuster punch kick fighting with a little bit of kind of martial arts flair to it. 
Uh, so Liu Kang defeats Shang Tsung and gets his own opportunity to uh, deliver a line. Does he say fatality? Flawless victory. Okay, well, that's wrong, because uh, I definitely remember him getting hit a couple of times. And then that's pretty much it. Our heroes come together. Yeah. I think techno and laughing while kids run around them with some blue flags at the, at the monitor. So as they're walking towards the temple, we see this uh, this large image. They, you can tell that they brought the actors in for one last shot because we haven't mentioned Raiden's wig because everyone yeah. does. But his wig in the the one <laughs> shot where he does the, I don't think so, is, is, is clearly different to the one yeah. that he was wearing throughout the whole film because it looks so much more effeminate. <laughs> so we see the Emperor, Shao Kahn, who was the big bad in... Mortal Kombat 2 and 3, I think. And yeah, we are going to get a sequel because he's like, I'm going to come and destroy your world. And you've got to think, in 1995, audience members, because clearly people lap this up, would have been like, OMG, when's the sequel coming out? And that's that. It was, a, it was a wild ride. So I guess that leaves us to answer two questions, Devlin. Is Mortal Kombat a flawless victory? Or are you going to submit it to a fatality? Would you recommend Mortal Kombat? Oh, um, you know what? Yeah, why not? It's it's like it's as uh, if we're talking about damning with faint praise. That's probably what I'm going to do here. It's uh, largely inoffensive, except for you know, as you pointed out, the bizarrely shoddy treatment of Sonya Blade as a character. It's largely inoffensive. It's it's pretty propulsive, even at the bits where it gets sort of gummed up in its own lack of internal logic. Um, it's it's dumb enough fun that you can get through it, and there's there's a, a good few moments of proper head scratching madness to be had. Um, it's not a good film, but it is a largely entertaining one. So yeah. Yeah, I'm fine with it. How about you? Oh, I'm, yeah. I guess I'm going to be in Outworld with uh, Sub-Zero and Scorpion then because, uh, no, I'm not going to recommend it. I've got to say, I, I, I really struggled with it. And, uh, and the irony being that I was the one that suggested <laughs> that we did it. So, um, yeah, be careful what you wish for, I guess. Didn't find the fights uh, at all adrenalizing, fun, which is what you come to this kind of film for. I found the Saturday morning cartoon narrative and characterizations just really, like you said, head, head scratching. But I couldn't get past it. I just, I just found it. I found it to be quite lazy. But I will caveat it with, at the time, the filmmakers, and I include Paul W. S. Anderson in this, and I give him massive credit for it. I think he had the pulse of the people. The fact that they simplify and strip back all the nonsense that the other uh, video game to movie adaptations had in them meant that this would be a real success. They they honed in on their target audience and their demographic, and they massively succeeded. You know, not just the box office, but like I said, there's a real reverence for this film. Mm. Unfortunately, I am not one of them, so it's a it's a fatality for me. However, I can understand why people enjoy this. That's that's Mortal Kombat team. So we are going to do Mortal Kombat Annihilation next week. I am mega excited because I do know what I'm getting into and I'm keen to know how you'll respond. I reckon when we start watching it, 
I will have seen it and I will have just largely excised it from my memory. So yeah, we'll see. I'm, I am looking forward to it though. To be good. Well, it makes a change from uh, from Dances with Wolves, doesn't it? It does. It's 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 always nice to have a a, a broad what is it, a, a broad array of interests. Exactly, and and that's one of the things we try and do on the show, isn't it? We afford every film an opportunity for analysis and yeah. critique. Uh, we struggled with this one because there really isn't a lot to unpack apart from what is going on with Christopher Lambert's <laughs> and that performance. Yeah. So, with that in mind, we shall leave you. So it is Galley signing out. And Devlin signing out. Thanks very much for listening. Cue the techno. Take a break! Hi everyone, I've got a quick favour to ask. If you enjoyed the podcast, could you rate and review the episode on whatever platform you are listening to it on? More information about the podcast, check out rewindmoviecast.com. Also, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Let us know your thoughts on each episode. Once again, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast.